1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: You don't need me to tell you that prices have gone up pretty much everywhere. Going to get gas? Yep, that hurts. Going grocery shopping? That hurts. People are having to make serious and tough choices about what they're buying to feed themselves, feed their families, to make their budget work for them. And yes, a lot of this has to do with supply chain issues. All of that is understandable. But in some cases, it's also perhaps companies just wanting to make some money, perhaps. And there's a word for that. It's called greedflation. Joining us now to talk more about this is Christopher Conlon, an assistant professor of economics at New York University. Christopher, thank you for being
1: with us. Thank you for having me, Simi.
3: So how big of a concern do you think greedflation actually is?
1: Well, I think we have to think about what, what it is people are actually talking about when they're, they're talking about greedflation, right? Because, you know, as an economist, we, I mostly think like firms were out there trying to make as much money as they could in 2019 as they are today. And I think we usually try to ask like, well, what has changed about the environment that's different? today than it was in 2019, right? It's not like they were generous or, you know, running charities in, in, in 2019. Um, so I think we have to ask, like, what, what is it we're really thinking about?
3: Okay, so what is it we're really thinking about?
1: <laughs> well, I think what people saw, right, is if you go to the store, uh, you would have seen that, look, prices are a lot higher. Um, you know, in the U.S., uh, inflation year on year is like 8, 8.5, 8.6%. That's a lot. That's something most people haven't seen in, in their lifetimes, um, and I think that people get mad immediately, right? And they see, or they see gas prices. You know, gas prices in the U.S. are about four ninety a gallon now. I'm sure they're probably even higher in oh, Canada today. Even
3: higher, yes, Christopher, they are. <laughs>
1: um, and so. You know, and I think the immediate visceral response is to find someone to blame, right? And so the first person you try to blame is probably the person you see setting the price. You say, look, I'm not setting the price of the, of the, at the gas station and I'm not setting the price at the supermarket. And so we look at those companies that are the ones we're interacting with and we think they, they're usually the kind of the first culprit we look at. Um, I think what actually happened a little bit is that uh, the other thing we saw is that uh, prices went up uh, starting around the second quarter of last year, so starting around like the the springtime. And companies started reporting record profits. And I think that's what really led to this greedflation narrative.
3: Right, especially here in Canada, I know a lot of people see Uh, how much they're hurting at grocery stores. Prices have gone up at grocery stores, but at the same time, they read stories about how some of the largest grocery store chains are also raking in record profits. Um, You know, they're making more money, and that doesn't sit well with a lot of people.
1: Oh, yeah, and that was definitely true in the U.S. too. So, you know, Kroger and Safeway and and all these big, big supermarkets and Walmart and Target in the U.S., almost every firm was, almost every big retailer was reporting record profits. Uh, pretty much for the period starting around March and maybe through about, you know, uh, you know, the, through the summer. So maybe through about August. Right. Um, yeah. And so that like got people even angrier. Right. So now you see like, look, the prices are rising and these companies are making tons of money. Um, I think some of that the good news maybe for not so much maybe exclusively in supermarkets but in a lot of other retail I think the good news is that some of that looks like it's it's subsiding a bit which may or may not be good news right so like the profits of Walmart and Target and even Ford and GM in the US and appliance makers you know like Whirlpool Maytag in the US all these companies it looked really good last summer. You know, sales were up, they were raising prices, and profits were at record levels. And what we've seen is what we've seen, like if you look at the last quarter of 2021, so you know, October, November, December, and the beginning of 2022, uh, we actually see that the company's profits are declining. Their sales are still strong. People are still running out to the stores to buy stuff because they've been, you know, you've been stuck at home for a year, you know, and you're thinking like, mm-hmm. man, I, I got to renovate my kitchen, you know, I'm looking at home every night, uh, you know, and so we saw still huge demand, but we're, we're starting to see the profits are starting to decline for these firms. And what's kicking in now are the costs are rising really fast for the firm. So they're paying more for transportation to right. move their products around. They're paying more in wages, which is sort of good for us, right, if, if we're getting more and more in wages. Um, but they're also just paying a lot more for inputs, like they have to pay more for stuff. And so there's this question, I think, whether or not firms were just ahead of the curve, you know, last last summer and last spring and whether they saw, look, you know, there aren't that many trucks left on my lot there's no reason to give you a good deal on the last truck on the lot because I'm going to run out of trucks tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And they've told me I'm not getting any more in for two months, right? <laughs> so
3: but how are countries responding? How are different governments responding to this? Because I know the idea of, like, uh, oil companies making huge profits, that has not sat well with quite a few different governments.
1: Yeah, I think, I think look, like, if there, are, you know, if there are companies that are, are traditionally not very popular – I think, you know, yeah, energy companies, oil and gas companies, not very popular. Um, one of the proposals in the U.S., uh, I don't know how, how good a chance it has of actually succeeding, but one of the proposals we've seen in the U.S. is to tax oil and gas companies uh, based on their profits today relative to their profits, you know, over like a five-year average so maybe going back to like 20, 2015 to twenty nineteen or something like that. Um, you know, the funny thing, of course, was that a lot of these companies lost a lot of money in twenty twenty, right? So oil prices went briefly negative, and you know, March sort of the peak of the shutdowns. And uh, I think that's what <laughs> companies are saying: like, well, don't compare my profits to the to the to the point where they right. were huge and negative, right? Um, but we'll see what happens in the U.S. Um, I don't know that that kind of proposal would have votes to pass, but obviously I'm not a political reporter. I'm an economist.
3: Right. But when you look at that, you think, are there things that people need to keep in mind though than just a headline that shows like maybe this company is having big profits right now?
1: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of that, I think a lot of those profits that we saw last summer, uh, I think a lot of those numbers are temporary. And I think what we're seeing today is we're seeing profits are coming back down, And the bad news is that inflation is a lot stronger, right? So I think what you saw is you saw a lot of companies raising prices, not when their costs went up, but because demand was strong and they couldn't get new products out on on, on shelves. And I think that's kind of always how, how inflation starts, right? It always starts with like, there's just a lot of demand. Everybody wants to buy cars and appliances and stuff. And there's not a lot of supply. Um, and we were hoping, you know, everybody was hoping, you know, factories were going to expand capacity. and we We're going to ramp right back up. And then we got super unlucky. Right. We got like China got hit by covid. Uh, we had a bird flu. Uh, we had all these microchip shortages. Uh, we had port delays and things like that. And, and instead, rather than it ramping up supply, we saw that that move through to prices. And now we're in this world where prices of everything are going up. Companies aren't making more, higher profits anymore. Um, and you, ne- you almost never see companies saying like, hey, what we want is some inflation right now. That's true. Uh, they hate yeah. inflation, too. <laughs> right.
3: Okay. Well, that's all good stuff to yeah. keep in mind, though, because I know it's, it's a constant reminder with everything uh, going up, up, and up these days. Christopher, thank you so much for your time.
1: You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi.
3: We are talking about impatience this morning, wondering whether the pandemic just made us more impatient or I don't know what's happened as we're trying to get things back to normal. I certainly feel it from people out there. Let's check in with our Raji Soho this morning. Raji, do you think people are more impatient these days?
4: Uh, You know, we have had this conversation before, about four years ago, there were like a ton of articles suddenly on why consumers were less patient than ever. And those studies showed that technology had a role to play and all that, you know, instant gratification was making people less patient. But I remember going, wait a sec, when I look around and I see people uh, in lineup or riding the bus doing things where you'd think they'd get impatient, what do they do? They pull out their phones and then they get distracted from being impatient. But then I think what the pandemic did do was maybe something worse. impatience turned into just like flat out rudeness. And I look around me, see me and I see people have lost their manners, like their just general decorum. And I think that the pandemic had everything to do with it because of social distancing. There were some things about social distancing that just conditioned us to naturally uh, avoid each other in social settings. And so I feel like there's less respect there, and I went my entire life never having any problems with being in a lineup, and now I feel like I have these regular encounters where either something happens to me or I overhear someone else's persnickety comments or somebody rolling their eyes. <laughs> if takes great too word. Long, or you know, yeah. I saw the other day someone, a customer, was trying to uh, make their order at uh, the counter, and they're telling the barista what they wanted, and I guess they changed their mind. And the person behind them said to them, excuse me, you're a pain in the... And I what? Thought, wow, really? Like you're going to tell a complete stranger that? And at the gym I find or at a store, you like might not be aware of something. Maybe there's a new restriction or maybe a change because we've come out of the pandemic. And instead of people, you know, politely being told, oh, we've got a change at our business, the services we offer or something like that. I, I have seen uh, a clerk or, you know, a greeter at a restaurant, just point to a sign and stare at someone like, hey, buddy, like, can't you just read the really? sign type of thing? And I've also seen this in me when it comes to, this is going to be no surprise, but when it comes to social media, I think people are being increasingly rude on social media. And if they disagree with someone's opinion, they're like, I must take you down and your family too, type of thing. So mm. I just think there's way too much rudeness going around right now because of yeah I think it all happened during the pandemic
3: I think so too like I don't disagree with you I've seen I have felt it myself wondering like why am I feeling this way I have seen it in action I see it on the road I saw people again out of the airport yesterday I saw a woman going the wrong way down the entrance ramp to the oh no no yes I did (laughs) and I stopped in a car and I looked at her because I thought what are you doing? This is not the exit. And I didn't even know how she got there because she would have had to go past the entrance gate. So I, and I, she didn't seem to be phased by it. So I don't know what's happening out there. I just, wow. after that yesterday, I thought, no, no, now this is not my imagination. Something's going on. So I would love to hear from people on this too. Have we become ruder or have we become more impatient? Like what is going on with people? What have you seen out there? at me at cknw.com. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there. Yes, please weigh in on this so we can try to find out what is going on with all of us. Up next, though, we are going to talk uh, with Von Palmer. want to know, is there light at the end of the tunnel for these negotiations with the government and the BCGEU? That's next.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: Well, if you are a regular traveler or user of Highway 91, especially around Highway 17, there is something important that you need to know. And, in fact, we're going to be told this something important by Ravi Kailan, who joins us now, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, also the MLA for North Delta. So this is right in your area, isn't it?
5: It is. Good morning, Simi. And, uh, yep, there's going to be some significant uh, traffic impacts over the long weekend, and uh, we certainly want to make sure people are aware of it.
3: Okay, so what is going on and why is it going on?
5: Well, uh, most people that have traveled through Delta, um, those certainly in North Delta and Surrey and and those in the trucking community know there's a significant project, $260 million project, happening at the bottom of Nordell or at the bottom of Alex Fraser Bridge connecting uh, Highway 91 and Highway 17. Uh, It's a $260 million project that's essentially removing all the lights between that in that area. Uh, so that traffic can flow a lot more smoother. Um, So we know there's going to be significant benefits, but this long weekend, starting June 30th to July 4th, there's going to be very limited traffic moving in and out of that area. And so we're asking people to avoid it. By by doing some of this work over this long weekend, in fact, we're going to be able to open up a lot of that space, uh, a lot of those changes ahead of schedule.
3: So is it going to be closed then? So people shouldn't even think about using Nordell Way or that whole interchange?
5: There will be portions of it that will be uh, completely closed. And there will be portions that will be single lane traffic. But we're expecting significant delays. And so we're just asking people to go around, find alternative routes, plan now. Uh, there will be uh, advertisements so people will be reminded regularly, but we do expect significant delays in that area.
3: Okay, and so how will this speed up the work then? Will this move up the date that it's going to be finished?
5: That's correct. Yeah, we're going to be able to, by uh, doing some of the work this weekend, the crews have uh, notified us that they're going to be able to open uh, significant parts of the interchanges uh, within a few weeks after. So it's going to allow them to move uh, more freely and safely Uh, so that we can move things ahead of schedule. So I think it's great news for our region because there's been work happening there for two years now and people, I think, uh, are done with it. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we want to make sure people that are working there are safe. And so this was the way we uh, found a a way to accommodate both.
3: Yeah, that's a bit of an underestimation that people are done with it, right? Because there's either that area being worked on or for quite a while, it was also the 72nd Street exit that was also, or 72nd exit that was also being worked on.
5: Yeah, there's been a lot of work being done in that area. But, you know, considering that we have an extra lane on Alex Fraser Bridge, which helps uh, the flow of traffic, and now with all these lights removed, uh, it's going to make uh, the traffic flow a lot more smoother. And so people, I think, know that there's going to be a big benefit. But as you've highlighted, people are, are like, just hurry up and get this thing done. Uh, I'm tired of seeing red codes everywhere.
3: Yes, they are. Okay, so June 30th to July the 4th, you said?
5: That's correct. So almost the entire long weekend. So uh, I hope people can find ways to avoid it. And, uh, and, uh, and again, we're going to be able to be opening uh, significant parts of that work uh, well ahead of schedule because of this weekend being uh, blocked off for the crews to be able to work.
3: Okay, that's good. Also, while I have you here, I also wanted to ask you about your trade mission, because we haven't talked about that since you went on that. How did that go?
5: Oh, it was intense. Uh, we were in five countries in ten days uh, and lost bags in the middle, which was not as fun as, people <laughs> <laughs> as imagined for a trade mission. But uh, it was it was significant in that um, a couple things that uh, really jumped out at me was how massive the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine was uh, to everyone in Europe. I, uh, many people referred to it as the 9/11 of Europe, and so. Every conversation, every jurisdiction we met with, we're talking about what are the impacts uh, and how do we become more secure going forward. So that really struck us. And, you know, uh, the reality is is people are not sitting around thinking about British Columbia. It's important for us to get out there, remind them about what we're doing, and when they heard around the work we're doing on climate change, around Indigenous reconciliation, uh, and our uh, some of our ambitions towards... Uh, building more sustainable infrastructure, uh, there was a lot of interest, and, uh, and I'm excited about, about some of the opportunities that we're chasing down from it.
3: Is it possible to build those new bridges with these other areas, given that, as you just pointed out, we can't even deliver people's luggage these days, it seems like?
5: Yeah, well, you know, uh, I heard a lot of complaints about uh, some of our airports uh, while I was away, and it, a part of me was like, oh, man, you should come see what's happening over here. Uh, hour forty-five, two-minute lines uh, just to get through security uh, in, in major uh, airports. So this is an impact that's being felt everywhere. Um, and uh, but I do believe that uh, we're at a very important stage uh, when it comes to relationships. We uh, are working on a trade diversification strategy. We we need to be able to trade with more countries. We need to make sure that our trade is more balanced with more countries. And so this trade mission and uh, and a few more that we're gonna have to do uh, is about finding new markets for our products so that we can continue to grow our economy, but at the same time, be in a, in a more resilient place if there's disruptions in the world.
3: Now you said the more that we're going to have to do. Why do you feel like we have to do them and where are those ones going to be?
5: Well, it's critically important that we continue to build new markets, find new opportunities for our businesses. Right now, we're in a process of engaging with various sectors uh, to hear from them about where they're interested. Uh, We're talking to our traditional sectors, forestry, mining, uh, uh, our uh, energy sectors to say, where do you think that new emerging markets are? But we're also talking to people in the, in the tech sector, in our agritech community and, 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 and uh, life science sectors to say, where would you think that the greatest opportunity will be for our products? Not only will this help us continue to grow, create good paying jobs here in British Columbia, which I think is very important, but it also will ensure that when a disruption is happening in one country, but we're diversified enough that we're able to sustain and and navigate through that and we've seen now uh, through the pandemic through the war that um you know if you become too reliant on a few jurisdictions it actually uh hinders us in a big way and so that's a lesson that's learned and uh we're going to be launching a new strategy this fall
3: okay so that's coming up but for now traffic warning once again what do people need to know about for the long weekend
5: Yeah, big reminder to everyone, please, please, please avoid uh, Highway 91 connector, the bottom of Alex Fraser. Avoid that area from June 30th to July 4th. Uh, Lots of construction happening, lots of uh, destruction, uh, long weekend. Hope that people enjoy their long weekend and and find ways to continue to stay cool.
3: Just not that direction. All right, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sonia. safe. You too. That's Ravi Kalan, uh, BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. But he's also the MLA for North Delta. And so this is a good traffic warning for people, government announcing this morning that that area, so that interchange, the, you know, when you come off the Alex Fraser Bridge and you go Nordel, uh, that is pretty much going to be closed from June 30th to July 4th. I say pretty much because he said very limited traffic will be getting through and they're hoping to speed up the upgrades that they are doing there. So just avoid that area entirely from June 30th to July the 4th.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory
3: Well, were you one of the many, many people who welcomed a dog into your home during the pandemic? You're certainly not alone, but I'm wondering, how's that going for you? Our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this story, because Raji, I would imagine when people suddenly had to go back to work, might have been a bit of a challenge.
4: Or, Simi, that people got dogs over the pandemic. People were lonely, right? Isolated, working from home and they make the best companions. So yes, many people got dogs and got used to working with them at their feet all day. And now those folks are going back to the office and some have already gone back to the office and now it's like, oh, what to do with the doggy? Well, it's uh, it turns out, I guess, as hard to get your dog into daycare as it is to get a toddler into daycare because the dog daycare services are. Are overwhelmed. I talked to Philip Roy Acres. He's one of the owners at the urban puppy shop that he started 22 years ago. They've got two locations and he said it is challenging.
2: It is difficult. You do need to choose your daycare wisely. You need to choose it based on uh, of course, how comfortable you feel about it and, and their policies around how they look after, how they take care of dogs. Uh, we're we happen to be a daycare that strongly believes in in separating the dogs according to their size, their age, their temperament. So we have numerous different play groups, um, so that the um, stress level, the well being, and the health and well being of of the dogs in our care stay um, at the at the absolute most is our uh, of our concern is the health and well being of the dogs in our care. It is difficult if you were a dog owner and you know, let's say you had a Saint Bernard and and uh and you figured that, well, it's gonna be easy to find a, a spot for a daycare. The reality is no, it's not. Licensing, daycare licensing in Vancouver is difficult. Um, property is expensive. It's difficult to to find the right zoning. Um, and you're not going to necessarily find it in your local neighborhood, right? So it's just one of those things where if you're wanting to put your dog in daycare, you might end up having to travel.
3: Okay, Raji, it did sound like for most of that conversation that he was talking about children. <laughs> I know it did. It really did.
4: <laughs> right? I actually had to snap myself out of our interview so many times to go, wait, we're still talking about dogs, right? We're not talking about kids because I relate with toddlers and trying to find them childcare. It's challenging out there. And he mentioned now that like many people who work from home now going back to the office, commuting to the office, they got to add that time. And now they have to also add in the time of dropping off a dog at daycare too. So people have to factor all these things in that they didn't necessarily think of when they got those dogs to begin with. And another thing he mentioned to me was that a lot of people got dog breeds that did not suit their lifestyle. They just jumped in, kind of impulse shopped basically, and got a dog that does not suit their uh, dwelling. For example, they might live in a small place. They got a husky. Uh, They might've gotten a dog that needs way more activity exercises and walks than I have seen
3: this. You know what? You are nailing it with that one because I have seen this all over the place people with dogs where I'm thinking, do you know how much active, how, how much exercise that yeah, dog actually right? needs?
4: Yeah, totally. And that's, okay, this is hard for the dogs. It's hard for the owners, but Philip from the Urban Puppy Shop, he said that the issues around the surge of pandemic dogs needing care, the, the stress of all of that, that's, that's hard on the owners, but it's actually really tough on the dogs too, because those dogs got used to being with their owners at home all day.
2: My advice to owners and, you know, I've, I've dealt with tens of thousands of dogs through the years and I, and I used to teach and, and uh, train people how to raise a puppy in the first year. And I think one of the big mistakes that um, a lot of new dog owners do is that they don't put any um, distance or separation between themselves and their dogs. And um, so unfortunately, what you do see, and we we do see it straight across the board, uh, you see a lot more dogs that have separation anxiety and separation anxiety can manifest itself in many ways, anything from barking to uh, destruction of uh, property, you know, the house, the walls uh, can become self-mutilating where they start, you know, becoming neurotic or chewing on their paws or what have you. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult thing if you've had a dog and you, and, and over the last year and a half, two years, you've spent 24 seven with them and you're sleeping with them and you're, you're, you're working with them and everything else. And then all of a sudden you expect that, okay, you got to go back to work. And, um, you know, your dog, Sammy should be okay at home. Well, he's not going to be, you know, the the dog is uh, they're pack animals, they are, uh, they like the companionship of people or other dogs around them. And when they're all of a sudden left to their own device. Um, And I'm not saying this happens with all dogs because it can vary according to the breed and the personality of that particular dog. But what you get is you get a dog that becomes reactive and starts having these anxiety issues. So what my recommendation to people are is to start trying to work with them to start uh, teaching their dog that it's okay to be on their own. Um, Don't sleep with your dog is one of the key things, right? Don't allow your dog in in the bed. Put distance between you and your dog. Try to start having it crate trained. Not that you can go to work for eight hours and have your dog in a crate. That's absolutely cruel. Um, But what you should start doing is trying to teach the dog that it's okay to be on its own and and you might have to do this in small doses you might have to start with it just being you know 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes you know um and so there's a lot of little tricks that you can start applying to try and help uh the dog with its separation
3: Okay, Raji, this sounds like a lot of work and it's going to be, it means that people have to be very tough. And you know, when your dog looks at you with that expression, (laughs) people are going to be like, oh, okay, I won't do this to you.
4: Yeah, Philip told me that it's all about consistency. So if the dog's not supposed to sleep on the bed, that means the dog never sleeps on the bed. It's not like, okay, sometimes you've got to be so consistent in the training. But uh, he also mentioned to me that it's not just doggy daycare that's needed and that's feeling overwhelmed at this point, but it's also vets. And he said that the SBCA is getting an influx of dogs that people got during the pandemic. And sadly, they just can't handle the responsibility and some of the costs. Costs now associated with it when they return back to work, because doggy daycare is not, it's not cheap.
3: It's not cheap. And also this requires like to really get your dog disciplined and behaving well, if there's behavioral problems, that requires a huge commitment on the part of people. I think sometimes people think dogs just come fully trained.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And people come to their dog also with their own issues resolved or not. And some people are not comfortable even having boundaries with the dog. They don't want to consistently train the dog. And apparently dogs, you need to train them their entire lives. It's not this thing that you just uh, you do. Uh, it's all said and done in the first week and then everything's fine. You got to keep it up with them and, and remain consistent that whole time. Uh, one thing that he did mention to me that I thought was really interesting is is that uh, dogs now um, are being diagnosed increasingly with different anxiety issues. And so vets are prescribing them uh, different drugs for that uh, more than ever before. I had no idea about that, Simi. So I don't know if that's a result of the pandemic well, or what, but th- let me tell you, cause you know that I like dogs and I don't have one yet, but this, doing this story made me think twice about it all.
3: <laughs> you know what? That's probably good. Better to think twice and take it seriously <laughs> than to just jump in and not know what you're getting into. Raji, thank you. Thanks.
4: Simi.
1: This is mornings with Simi.
3: What was going on with Ecom over the weekend? There have been reports that people were waiting to have their call patched through, and then waiting perhaps to get an ambulance as well. So we thought, let's go directly to the source here. Jasmine Bradley joins us now, the Ecom executive director of communications and public affairs. Jasmine, thanks for being with us.
6: Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having
3: me. Were there some problems at Ecom over the weekend? Were calls getting answered?
6: So while we didn't actually see any extended or significant delays on the 911 lines in terms of ecoms call takers answering the initial part of the emergency calls, this past weekend was one of the busiest of the year that we've seen. And um, I live in the downtown core. It felt like The sirens were going off all the time. Um, And uh, so we actually did see a much, much busier weekend with 23% more calls than any other weekend in June so far.
3: Okay, and was there any kind of a delay in getting some of those calls answered or transferred to an ambulance perhaps?
6: Uh, there were no significant or extended delays in our ability to answer 911 calls, the front end portion of those calls for calls relating to the ambulance service. I'll have to refer you to BC emergency health services to speak to their um, call answer. service. Okay.
3: OK, did you hear of any complaints, though, because that's been the problem in the past, right? Not on your end, but on their end.
6: Well, I can tell you, Simi, that we had uh, 19,567 911 calls this past weekend, which is 23% higher than normal. Um, and overall, there were 19% more calls for police, 9% more requests for the ambulance service, so they were definitely busier, and twice as many calls for, for the fire department.
3: Okay, so what happens then? Is it when the weather gets nice and people need to call e more often? Like, is that just a, a regular spike in calls when this when the weather changes?
6: Um, absolutely. I mean, the summer months are traditionally the busiest time of year for ecom, and um, this year in particular, we are quite concerned in terms of the call volumes that we might be seeing, and 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 you know, we expect it to be one of the busiest summers on record, potentially even busier than last year. Um, that's specifically because this is the first summer in years that VC is going to have no COVID restrictions and major events like Celebration of Light and Canada Day, along with all the outdoor music festivals, these are all back in full force. So when you take that combined with any weather related events that might impact our province, it means that it will be busier for first responders and busier for ecom. Right. So how is
3: ecom preparing for that then?
6: Um, so, in terms of uh, staffing, we have been aggressively trying to recruit more call takers um, to ensure that we have enough staff to be able to meet the higher volumes that we're seeing. But, you know, in terms of recruitment and retention challenges, ecom is not alone in terms of um, it's a tight market out there. And we are really feeling the impacts of that, like many other 911 centers across the country, to be quite honest Um, and we read about that in the news all the time. Um, The other piece is that we do have um, while we're aggressively recruiting for more staff, we're also losing people um, at the same time to other opportunities, whether that's becoming a first responder themselves, which uh, we know a lot of our employees do have aspirations to do that that work, Um, or also going on leave. We have higher leave rates um, this year compared to previous years and um, a year after after the 2021 heat dome, we still have staff who are on leave because of, because of the trauma of uh, that time. So it's been really difficult to um, recruit and retain people. This is a demanding job um, at the best of times. And right now it's just uh, even more difficult.
3: So even though all that challenge, all the, I know there's been a lot of, you know, work being done in terms to get the word out there that you're hiring people. Has that resulted in more people being hired?
6: Um, we Yes, we have hired an additional 63 911 call takers so far in 2022. Um, and with our summer student program, it's allowed us to bolster our numbers in the lower mainland and on Vancouver Island for the first time since we've extended that program. Um, we've also been, along with recruitment, we've been really trying to focus on making changes to better support and therefore retaining the staff that we have. So we've recently introduced a new peer coaching program with a dedicated team to provide higher a higher level of on-the-job training and support for our call-takers. We continue to work on short- and longer-term improvements to the mental health support available for our staff, including increasing access to trauma-informed counselling services. And we also recently partnered with the Canadian Mental Health Association to develop a specific program and resources for our employees geared toward the nature of the job.
3: Wow, okay, that's a lot. So then how many more people do you still need? Like that recruitment drive, is it still going full speed ahead?
6: Full speed ahead, absolutely. Um, we want to make sure that uh, we're able to have as many staff as we can answering the emergency calls, especially as we're headed toward a busier summer.
3: Okay, what advice do you have for people then if they do have to, you know, use e
6: so, um, there's, you know, as we, as we do prepare for what we expect to be a really busy summer for emergency services across the board, um, we do have some specific tips for people to help us help. Um, now more than ever, we really are relying on the public to know what resource to turn to to make the right call. Um, so, think before you dial 911 to just help determine if immediate action is required by police, fire, or ambulance. And that word immediate is really key there. And, um, If you answer yes to any of these questions, is someone's health at risk, is someone's safety or property at risk right now in the moment, is there a crime in progress, that's all um, a 911 call because there's something immediate that first responders can do to help. Locking and storing your cell phone, Um, we anticipate that there's close to a 20% of our 911 calls actually come from accidental dials. And so, you know, making sure that your phone is locked and stored. If you give your phone to a child to play with, turn it on airplane mode so it's not capable of making that emergency call. Um, And if you do accidentally dial, stay on the line to tell our call taker so that they don't have to take the time to call back several times to make sure that you are okay.
3: That's all good advice. Uh, Jasmine, thank you for that.
6: You're very welcome.
3: That's Jasmine Bradley, eCom Executive Director of Communications and Public Affairs. Uh, yes, they have seen an increase in calls when the weather got good over the past weekend. I think the number she was 19% more calls uh, over the previous weekend. That happens when the weather gets nice. And they're expecting more because of all the events increasing, numbers of people being outdoors, events happening. And so, yeah, advice on how, when to call 911 is good. And, and think about that right now, too, with the heat that we're happening, what we have happening That's going to make people also have more medical issues potentially and calling 911. And that heat is staying with us today. We do have a heat warning. And this is almost one year exactly since we had that heat dome situation. So I think we're very more hyper aware, I would say, of the situation and and what an impact the heat can have. So today we expect highs of about 27 degrees. That's near the water. 33 inland in the Fraser Valley. Even higher than that, mid-30s for parts of the Fraser Valley. Humidex is high. The UV index is high. And it's going to be that way all day today. Tomorrow, we do expect a change in the weather, a few degrees cooler, potential for thunder showers too. But today, keep that in mind that it's still going to be hot, hot out there.